We read these words. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a king above all gods. Father, we turn to you, Lord of lords, king of kings, creator of the universe, master of mankind. And Lord, we look to you to speak to us today from this, your book, that you have given to us that we might understand the nature of God and the purpose of our existence, the plan of salvation, and the history of redemption. Lord, focus our thoughts this morning. I pray that you'll speak to us from these pages of the book of Judges, and that we will not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Father, I pray that as your word is proclaimed throughout this property this morning in every class and every service, that you will be divinely and powerfully present. And Father, with those missionaries for whom we are, have been praying regularly as they minister this day, we trust you to empower them for the work which you've called them to do. Lord, we just commit ourselves to you, we submit to you, and we trust you to do your good work in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the third chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to read beginning at verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Then And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked an R-rated story, I suppose. There used to be uh, rules in Hollywood about showing biblical stories, that you had to show them fairly close to the way the story was really presented in the Bible and to uh, avoid Hollywoodizing it too much, at least in terms of the violence and the, the sex parts. But of course, that has long gone and, and those rules don't hold anymore. What we have here, of course, is the people of Israel have again, going back to verse 12, we read and we studied this last week, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So after they had moved through the first time of oppression, uh, when Othniel was raised up as the deliverer and Cushan-Rishathaim, a, a king from a distant land, <clears throat> was defeated, and they were freed from that uh, oppression, 
we find that the next generation turns their back upon the Lord again and begins chasing after the evil gods of the pagans. <clears throat> so the Lord allows this punishment to come upon them, this discipline, in the form of the Moabites led by the king whose name is Eglon. As had happened in the first place when oppression came upon them, they came to their senses and they woke up and they called upon the Lord and the Lord sent the deliverer whose name was Othniel. And so it is again that they come to their senses once more. They cried out to God and in due time he responded. And this is, I think, an important principle to remember throughout the book of Judges. In due time he responded. God is not a genie in heaven just waiting for our uh, first little beck and call and he's going to go just hopping to it, you know. God has a plan, and his plan will be put into to effect. Our job is to seek his face and to pray, and all of that facilitates the work because he has given us the opportunity to join in the great work he is doing through prayer. And so as they called upon him, he did answer, but he allowed them to reap the fruit of their apostasy for 18 years. Now again, we're not told how far into that period of oppression it was before they called upon the Lord. Was it several years? We don't know. But it was 18 years that they uh, suffered under the heavy hand of the Moabites before they were sent the deliverer whose name was Ehud. What's interesting in this passage is that we're told that God empowered a left-handed Benjamite by the name of Ehud. That the writer notes his dominant hand seems to indicate that left-handedness was not a very common phenomenon amongst the um, Israelites. We do discover, however, later in the book of Judges, in the 20th chapter, that there will be, uh, the scripture specifically notes that there are 700 left-handed Benjamite warriors. Now, with this constant reference to Benjamin, it seems to indicate that within the nation of Israel, the, the gene that leads to left-handedness must have been dominant in, I mean, not dominant, but more prominent in the, in the tribe of Benjamin than in other tribes, or otherwise it wouldn't be so noted. Uh, I understand, maybe this is true or not, I don't know, that left-handedness is uh, one out of ten phenomenon, 10% 10 of the people left-handed. Is that, is that true? Does anybody know for sure? I, I'm getting some nods of assent here. Whether that was true amongst Israel or not, I don't know. You wouldn't think otherwise, but uh, they make a big point of it here. At least the author makes a big point of it. What is interesting here, though, is to look into the Hebrew word here. And it's actually not one word. And it doesn't say left-handed. It's the, the specific Hebrew phrase is bound in the right hand or deformed or crippled in the right hand. Not literally crippled, but the idea is that obviously this was a left-handed person and a right hand was what? to us who are right-handed, the left hand is, you know, the, you know, kind of deal. And so what, what this will prove to be, of course, is a very useful trait for Ehud. And we'll see how that works in, in the story. It plays a big role in what he's able to do here. What is interesting is that Josephus goes on to refer to Ehud as a bold, courageous, and very strong man. Now, of course, this would come from the tradition that's passed down through Hebrew oral tradition because it is not written as such in the scripture. For those of you who are not familiar with, with Josephus, Josephus was a man of the uh, Jewish race who was actually a priest in Galilee uh, in the first century, predominantly just after the time of Christ. He was probably born while Christ was alive. 
and then he came to prominence in the Great Jewish War, which occurred uh, from 66 to 73, and he eventually was carried off to Italy, where he spent the rest of his life, and he wrote two major works, one called The Antiquities of the Jews, and the other called The Wars of the Jews. And these are very important supplementary works to our study of uh, Scripture, and particularly to the events of the first century surrounding the War of the Jews against Rome. As I studied this, uh, a passage came to mind from Psalm 80. This is not on your outline, but uh, let me just read a, a few verses from the 80th Psalm. <coughs> the 80th Psalm, beginning at verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech thee. Look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine, even the shoot which thy hand has planted and on the Son whom thou hast strengthened for thyself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand. Interesting concept. Let your hand, the hand of God, be upon the man of your right hand. And in this case, the man of God's right hand is actually a left-handed man. Upon the Son of Man, whom thou didst make strong for thyself, then we shall not turn back from thee. Revive us, and we will call upon thy name. O God of hosts, restore us. Cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Now this uh, particular psalm wasn't specifically written about the time of Ehud, but it was written about the general times of oppression of Israel in which the Lord has allowed the oppression to become because, to come because of their, what we would call today, backsliding, which is sort of the Hebrew word behind the turning away from the Lord in that psalm. What we discover here is that the time came during the year when the annual tribute that Israel had to make to their oppressors, the Moabites, was to be delivered. And so exactly how Ehud was chosen to be the one who would make the delivery of the tribute, we are not told in this passage. It obviously was something that was led by God because Ehud is obviously the man upon whom God puts his hand as the deliverer. But he was entrusted with the annual tribute to take it down to Jericho and to deliver it to Eglon. But it is clear from the 16th verse of this passage, which we read there, where we read, And Ehud, Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. Well, what we discover here is that Ehud had on an audacious plan, a plan to execute Eglon long before he ever left with the tribute. You don't make a sword in a few minutes. This had to be something that he was planning for a while. In order to make a sword, it tells us that, that Ehud made the sword himself. This implies that he was a metal smith. Because you don't, just everybody doesn't walk out in their backyard and make a sword, you know. First of all, you have to have the raw material. In this case, it most likely would have been bronze. Uh, he would have had to have the, uh, the anvil and the forge and all that it took in order to heat the metal and to form it into a sword and, and to put a double edge on it. I mean, sword making was a talent. It was something that a skilled person did. Everybody didn't go out and make a sword in his backyard, as I said. So in order to make this weapon, he had to have the ability to make something that would be strong and sharp and effective and the size he wanted it to be. 
And although he was going to conceal this weapon, it was still a very daring and dangerous plan that he had in mind. So obviously, you see, before he ever leaves with the tribute, he's got this plan that if the door opens he's, and he has the opportunity, he's going to destroy the king of the Moabites. Now, Scripture does not often give physical characteristics of those who play key roles in the passages. You'll notice how so many people wonder what Jesus looked like because the Scripture doesn't tell us. It, it just says that he was not really that attractive a person, even though whenever he's in the movies, he's very attractive, of course. But um, not in, in his physical appearance. Obviously, he was charismatic in his uh, personality and in the power, of course, being the Son of God. But um, we, we don't know if he was tall or short or if he, you know, certainly he wasn't blonde and blue-eyed as he is often portrayed because that's just not characteristics. You know, we think of Jews often as being blonde and blue-eyed because we're looking at the Ashkenazim Jews, those that had migrated into the northern world and intermarried with the Russians and the Poles and the Germans and obviously blue-eyed, blonde, genetic type got into the Jewish stock, but their basic stock is, is Eastern Mediterranean which is olive-skinned, dark-haired, brown-eyed. So if you want to see uh, a Jew of somebody playing the part of, of Jesus who looked really like he would have, you should have a dark-haired, dark-eyed, you know, olive-complected Jesus. But apparently the film, Jesus is being used all over the world very effectively to lead men and women to Christ. So the message is more powerful than the messenger in the case of the movie anyway. But in this passage, we are given two physical traits that are vital to the account. The first is, as we've already noted, that Eglon was left-handed. This plays a major role in the event which transpires. The second one is that Eglon was obese. Now, what is Ehud doing? Ehud is leading the tribute caravan from the highlands down into the downfaulted region of the Valley of Jericho and carrying the tribute items to Eglon and his headquarters there at Jericho. Certainly Ehud went through all the proper protocol. He bowed down and made obeisance and did all the right things. I don't think he acted snotty or, or, or you know, kind of rebellious in front of Eglon or his messengers because there would have been a great deal of suspicion. I think he went out of his way to appear very deferential to the Moabites as he delivered the uh, tribute items. I'm sure inside it was very difficult to do, but he was doing it anyway. He delivered the money, the grain, the animals, all that made up the annual tribute that the Moabites exacted from Israel. After having delivered the tribute, the caravan left and Ehud led it out of Jericho. And the passage tells us that they went to Gilgal. Now, I, I need to remind you that the name Gilgal is a very common name. Gilgal basically means circle, specifically a circle of stones. So the name Gilgal was used very frequently. It's very unlikely that the Gilgal in this passage is the Gilgal where Joshua had built his camp. The reason being that it's in the wrong direction. The Gilgal from Jericho, uh, that where Joshua's camp was, is moving back toward the Jordan River. That wouldn't be a good thing for him to be doing in this instance. Instead, he needs to be heading back up to the Jewish, uh, the Judean and the Ephraimite highlands. So he'd be moving west. 
So the Gilgal we're talking about here is probably located a couple of miles west of Jericho, right where the escarpment comes down into the valley of Jericho, okay? Probably right there is where the Gilgal in this passage was located. He led his caravan back there to this place where he departed from the caravan. Now the idea that this is not the same Gilgal is supported by the passage, but you wouldn't know it from reading the passage the way I read it to you uh, a few minutes ago. Let me go back here to, uh, well, let me read from verse 18. And when it came about, he had finished presenting the tribute he, that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back, meaning he went with them a certain distance then. He turned back, and it says, from the idols which were at Gilgal. Well, the word there, which is translated idols, is actually a Hebrew word which means to be hewn out of stone, to be hewn out of stone. And in certain passages, to translate that as idols seems to fit the, uh, the uh, context, but it does not here. The Old Testament commentators from the late 19th century, Kyle and Delich, say that the term should be translated stone quarries, stone quarries, that which is hewn out of stone, stone quarries would be uh, the proper phrase here. So he, when he turned back from the stone quarries, which were at Gilgal, and then he said he had a secret message and so forth, the idea being that there was a place called Gilgal where stone was quarried, possibly stone, that was used uh, in some of the construction of Jericho prior to its destruction, which fits in the idea of going west for two reasons. First of all, he would be headed west to get his caravan back into the Judean highlands and away from the headquarters here at Jericho. And secondly, because stone quarries would not be found out in the middle of the alluvial plain where the old Gilgal was, out where Joshua's Gilgal was, was over near the river. It's, it's in the alluvial plain. You're not likely to have rock quarries there. The rock quarries are going to be over near the hills where they come down onto the plain. So all of this seems to, to fit together in, in this particular way. So he sends the caravan up the escarpment to, to make sure that the caravan escapes out of harm's way. And then he returns to Eglon's palace in Jericho. Now, because of his extreme deferential attitude towards the Moabite leaders and Eglon in particular, why it didn't seem like any alarming thing to have Eud show up again here. And so when he arrived, he sent word to Eglon saying that he had a secret message that was so important that he could not entrust it to anyone but the ears of Eglon himself. This is a key to the whole situation. Eglon is taken in by the Rus. He falls for Ehud's plan. And he grants Ehud an audience. Since it was to be a secret message, Eglon dismissed all of his servants and all of his guards and led him into his private roof chamber. Probably it was summertime, doesn't really matter. It's always warm in Jericho, even in the dead of winter at 75 degrees. Uh, in the summertime, it's a lot warmer than that. And it was very common for people in that part of the world, and still is today, to build little roof chambers where it's cooler. Often what happens, and this is a fascinating thing you'll see if you go to the Near East, uh, all the way from Turkey on down, and that is that grape vines are trained up a building to grow on top of the roof chamber. Or the, sometimes it's like a little patio up there. And so you drive along, you know, and here's a two and three story tall building. And here's this grapevine 
sometimes it's that big around, growing straight up the outer wall, not a leaf on it the whole way till it gets to the top and then it leafs out all over the top of this patio. You see them all over the Middle East even, even today. That was the coolest place to be uh, at that particular time. And so here they are up in this roof chamber and Ehud is now alone with the oppressor of Israel. And Ehud proclaimed that he had a message for Eglon from Yahweh. Well, whether it was out of respect for the fact that he was going to hear the message from a deity, or because he had this excitement within him that he was going to hear a word from God, which he was certain was going to be a good word, that he jumps up from his throne. This is a very important part of the program because a man of his size sitting down would be a little difficult to kill without making some noise. But by standing up, he made himself vulnerable to what uh, Ehud's plan was for him. But what is interesting and important is that Eglon was totally unsuspecting of what was about to transpire. After all, he had ruled Israel for 18 years and there had been no attempt to break his hold. The Israelites had not rebelled against him. They had been quiescent under his control. And Ehud appeared to be a man totally without guile, a deferential man, a man who seemed to like Eglon. And so he was, he was totally unsuspecting. Of course, we can't, can't downplay the role of God in all of this. Certainly God took away from him any suspicions he might have had of Ehud's intentions. Well, you know, let's be practical here. I mean, Ehud didn't just walk out of the streets into the palace and into the presence of the, the king without the guards checking him out, right? Certainly they frisked him. They, they patted him down, you know, and, and down the, the side that you normally would carry a sword, which is your left side because almost everybody is right-handed. And nobody even suspected the idea that somebody might have strapped a sword on the inner side of his, left, of his right thigh. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, this is a small sword. It's a cubit length, which is approximately 18 inches or so. And it's made without a hilt. So it's just a, a blade. It's like a big dagger is what it is. It's, it's just a blade with a, with a handle, but no hilt on the handles. That's why the whole thing, you know, well, you know, as we read in the story, the whole thing went into him. So, so this thing was strapped on his thigh and was totally invisible to the outside. You couldn't see any lumps or bumps and they probably patted him down where you would normally pat somebody down and, and found no weapons. And, and so he was able to go into the presence of Eglon and Eglon had no reason to believe that this man had ill intentions or had any capacity to do anything that would harm Eglon. Well, when Ehud reached his left, left hand inside his garments. Eglon was suspecting that he was going to bring out a scroll in which the word of the Lord to him was written. So we expect him to drag out a scroll, open it up, and read the word of the Lord, or of the God of Israel, to him. Now, because Ehud had been so deferential to the king and seemed so friendly and, uh, to the king, and because um, he demonstrated a real reverence for the word of God here, uh, Eglon allowed him to come right up close to him within an arm's length. And so Ehud was able to come right, because it was a secret message. Besides, you know, roof chambers were usually kind of airy and, and not exactly soundproof. And, and so he was coming up very, very close to him. And so here he stood, you know, right this far away almost from Eglon 
when he reached inside to pull out the, quote, scroll. At least that's what Eglon thought. And of course, he whipped out the short sword. And I don't think Eglon knew he was in danger until the sword was already penetrating his body. So powerful was the thrust of the weapon that we're told in the passage that the entire weapon went into the body of, of, of this, this large man. What we discover from the passage is there is no evidence that Eglon made a sound or any resistance whatsoever. What that tells us is that the surprise was so overwhelming and the blow was so accurate that he had no time or ability to cry out. That the sword just penetrated. It must have hit a vital spot almost immediately after it penetrated into the depths of his body. Scripture doesn't say. Um, Josephus uh, says that he smote him in the heart, which would have meant, in this case, it would have had to been an upward thrust in, in this case. It could have struck the aorta. I, I would guess if you slip, slit the aorta, that kind of puts a person out of functioning fairly quickly. Whatever the case was, he died virtually instantly, without a sound. Ehud, after he didn't bother trying to get his sword back, just, just leave it there. And he leaves the room very nonchalantly, as if, you know, had a good conversation with the king. Goodbye, your royal highness. And he uh, gets out and he manages to lock the door behind him, hoping, of course, that this will give him a little chance to escape. Now, what I think is interesting here is Matthew Henry, in his commentary about this, says that Ehud's act should not be viewed as either murder or assassination. Rather, it should be because he was a judge or a minister of divine justice that he was simply executing or carrying out the judgment of God upon this man, Eglon. Well, let's read on at uh, verse 24. When he had gone out, the servants came and looked, and behold, the door of the roof chambers, the doors of the roof chambers uh, was locked, were locked. And they said, he is only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until th they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols or the rock quarries and escaped to Sarah. And it came about that when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Again, let me just remind us that as we look at this, we see a great deal of violence. But I think we need to be reminded of the fact that the real issue here is spiritual warfare. This is the real issue. The real issue is the uh, war of, of the enemy of God's plan against God's people. And in this case, it manifests itself with actually the slaughter of 10,000 Moabites. But, but that is not the real essence of the whole thing. And, and so as we relate to it, we must relate to it not in the fact that we're going to go out and start slaying 
you know, 10,000 of whatever the enemy might be, but that we are in a battle as Israel was in the battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, which it was then also, but it just simply manifested itself in its resolution in the execution of these Moabites. In our case, um, the enemy is one that we must fight primarily through prayer. And uh, by being people of prayer, the victories are won against the forces of hell, which are arrayed against us today. And they are arrayed against us in a, in, in a manifold manner today, as you probably are well aware of. When Ehud was leaving the palace, the servants and the guards who had been told by Ehud to, to go away went back to their positions and, and, of course, even wanted to get back inside the, quote, cool room where they could personally guard the king. But when they got there, they found his door to be locked. And they decided that, and the Hebrew here is, that he was covering his feet. Now, the Hebrew for covering his feet means what we would today say uh, bodily elimination. So he's in there taking care of uh, certain matters, and so we shouldn't barge in and, and disturb him. As time passed, however, and the doors were not unlocked, they began to become anxious. And finally, they took the chance of unlocking the doors to the king's private chambers without his permission. And that was a very serious matter. Uh, because if they did this and he was very unhappy with what they did and in, in he was in there, they could face uh, severe punishment. But they arrived at the point that this something is really wrong. He's been in there way too long. There's something wrong. And so they took the chance of opening the door. And of course, they found him dead on the floor. Immediately, of course, they suspected Ehud because he was the last one seen leaving the room. They suspected he was what they would consider an assassin. But... As Ehud had planned, so it worked out. So much time had passed that he had gotten too great a lead for them to catch him readily. And it was probably getting close to dark by now. And to try to chase Ehud towards the hill country there and try to chase him into the escarpment. Now, the escarpment is fairly abrupt. If you've been to Israel, you know the escarpment drops fairly abruptly. Then it flattens out there at Jericho. So as you move across the plain, you rise pretty quickly up into the escarpment there. And it's full of ravines and caves and all kinds of places that a person could hide in the dark. And so uh, they uh, did not launch an immediate search for him, apparently, because they knew that would be impossible. Now, if you look at a map that shows the routes that existed at this particular time, Jericho was a crossroads. Of course, Jericho had, had been destroyed and, and was a ruin. And probably the Moabite camp was not a permanent structure, but was a tent city. The Moabites were con uh, accustomed to living in tents many times anyway. But Jericho was a crossroad, and out of Jericho to the east ran three main roads. One, one ran uh, to, to the west. One ran southwest and went up into the highlands and went to Jerusalem. The second road went almost due west and went up into the highlands and came out where at Ai and Bethel. The third route went to the northwest and came out near Shiloh in the upper uh, highlands there. So, where did Ehud go? Well, it's very unlikely that he took the southwest road and went to Jerusalem. There would be no reason to. Israel didn't even possess Jerusalem. He may have gone due west up to the Bethel region, but the most likely route he took was up towards Shiloh because he ends up in the forests of Ephraim, which were in the area near Shiloh. 
We're told that he went on to Sarah, S-E-I-R-A-H. This is the only place in Scripture this name shows up. So, what is Sarah? Nobody knows. It's possible that it was a, a small village in Ephraim that was unknown other than in this single reference, but because the Hebrew word can be translated forest or goat or shaggy, you know, this kind of a concept, many feel that it was a particular place in the forest of Ephraim that the Israelites would have known of. And so he went into that part of the forest there, and what does he do? Well, he knows that the Moabites are going to be really ticked. You know, this guy walks right into the middle of their palace, kills their king, and escapes. I mean, if you were the, who is it, the Secret Service, you know, in the United States, and somebody kills your president and, and disappears for hours, and you don't even know what's happening, that's, that's mud on your face, to say the least, or egg, or whatever it is. And so these guys are really unhappy. He knows that the Moabites are going to seek terrible revenge for this loss, because it's humiliating as well as, uh, you know, a direct blow against their authority. And so he knows he cannot wait for the Moabites to react, cannot wait for them to get organized and to move, and so he takes the initiative himself. And the scripture says he blows the trumpet. In this case, it is the shofar, the ram's horn. He blows that there. It's a call, it's a blast that calls for the men to come and gather for war. And so they gather, the signal for action. An Israelite army gathers. We're not told of the makeup of the army. It must have been primarily of Ephraimites, probably some Benjamites, and maybe some from Manasseh, a little bit further to the north, gathered together there. Now, what's interesting is, uh, you, you're probably aware of, and I won't get into this issue one way or the other, but there are major moves today in this country to pass all kinds of laws against guns being possessed by the citizenry. But obviously, as Israel gathered together here, they didn't come running up there to, uh, to Ehud saying, well, we're here, uh, we've got our five fingers on each hand, let's go to battle. No, they probably came with weapons. So they possessed weapons. Their weapons were probably kept uh, out of sight as much as possible so that Moabites wouldn't take them from them. But here they arrive, they have weapon, weapons in hand, and they are led down the escarpment from the hill country down to Jericho to attack the Moabites. And you can just believe these people did it with great enthusiasm. We've been impressed by these guys, oppressed by these guys for 18 years. Now's our opportunity. And so they run down the escarpment to attack the Moabites. What gave them now the audacity to do this? What gave them the energy to do this? What gave them this was the fact that they viewed Ehud as their shofat, God-appointed, God-anointed deliverer. They viewed him as that. Why? How in the world could a man go right into the very nerve center of Moabite control and kill the king and get away with it? How could that happen unless God was with him? And so they believed that this was God's man. And so they enthusiastically moved with him. God is now going to deliver us. We've cried out to him. We've repented of our sin. We've called upon him. And now the moment of delivery has come. They believe it. And so they follow him with great enthusiasm down the hills. And what he does is he tells one group, go over to the river between Jericho and Moab at the main fords. Go there and block the escape route. 
The rest of us will attack Jericho directly. We will attack the Moabite camp. And as the Moabites flee in confusion, they will be trapped between the two Israelite forces. And that is exactly what happens. 10,000 Moabites are slaughtered. And we're told in the scripture these were all valiant warriors. So the cream of the Moabite crop dies at the hands of Ehud's makeshift army, his, his men that were gathered together at the last moment, kind of a militia, if you will, a Minutemen group who are able to wipe out the Moabites. The king is gone. There certainly was a matter of confusion about that whole thing, which contributed to the Moabites' ill preparation for defense. And the victory was complete. The Moabites were crushed. What the scripture tells us is that from that moment on, there was 80 years of peace, 80 years of shalom, 80 years that the Israelites could sit under their vine and rest in the sense that there was not going to be an attack made upon them. I think, though, because of our understanding of the book of Judges, we have to view this probably as 80 years of peace localized to that particular portion of Canaan. Because the last verse of this particular chapter tells us of another judge who's raised up, a man by the name of Shamgar, who has to fight the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are clear across Canaan on the, on the coast. And so apparently the peace did not carry over to the coast. The peace was from the Ephraimite highlands down into the Jericho area. By the way, Jericho was technically a part of the land that was given to Benjamin as a tribal territory. So it made very much sense that Ehud, a Benjamite, should be the leader, should be the shofat here in recovering this territory from Moabite control. And, and, and so it's a localized 80 years of peace. There will be trouble to the west. There'll be probably later on trouble to the north. But at least for this region, there will be 80 years of peace. Now, was Ehud a shofat in the larger sense of the word? Uh, not only the deliverer of the moment, but did he serve as a, quote, judge over Israel uh, for those 80 years? Uh, well, it doesn't say exactly, but... It's implied this in the first verse of the fourth chapter when it says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So it implies that under Ehud's direction, Israel walked with the Lord. And then when he died, things went kaput again. I emphasized this last week, but that phrase that shows up in the fourth chapter of the first verse, Then, is, then the sons of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, is an oft-repeated phrase in the book of Judges. It's a very deflating phrase. <laughs> you know, ah, they have victory, they have peace. Then they did evil in the sight of the Lord again, you know. Almost like in the wilderness. Yeah, yes, exactly in the wilderness. It's, <laughs> if anything displays the patience and long-suffering of God, this does. And, and of course, it's a, great, it's a great encouragement to us. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that, that you know, daily we, we are in need of God's forgiveness because we, we fail in the flesh so, so often. And yet God is, is patient with us, working with us to mold us into the character that he wants us to be. That we all be shofatim of some sort within the environment he has placed us, people who are deliverers. Well, uh, next week we'll look at this last verse and, and uh, the little story we have of Shamgar. And then we'll be moving to the north part of the land 
and looking at the rising of the city of Hatsur.